I think they're just so beautiful fungi, mushrooms specifically, like the way that they fruit. They have so many different forms. Some of them look like coral at the bottom of the sea. Some of them look like the antlers of an elk or the plumage of a bird. My favorite wild mushroom to eat and to gaze at lovingly is the black trumpet. And it looks like dead folks are just pushing up trumpets and they have their own like brass band or something. (laughs) And you realize that especially if you got into foraging later in life, that you've been just walking by these beautiful organisms your whole life without really stopping to take a look. And it's kind of intoxicating. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And in case you haven't noticed, Unladies, we're in the midst of a shroom boom. Mushrooms pickled, mushrooms raw, and delicious they are too. Mushrooms topped with almost as many fillings as the hostess's imagination will allow. And mushroom dips, they're just another variation. The Romans had their own theory on the popularity of mushrooms. They believed they stimulated strength and virility, reserving them exclusively for the Caesars and the army. Other citizens caught eating them were liable to be executed. Now that shouldn't worry anyone who's caught up with the 20th century party spirit. Mushrooms in hot brandy. Excuse me while I just savor the thought. Edible mushrooms didn't make their way into American kitchens until the late 1800s. Prior to that, they were often considered too mysterious, even witchy. But in 1898, you have magazines like Good Housekeeping reporting, fads have their day in foods as well as in other things. The mushroom fad is now on. To which I say, with all due respect, 1898 Good Housekeeping, the mushroom fad now is on. Because today, in 2023, mushrooms are the hottest culinary ingredient, home decor motif, wellness additive, mental reliever, building material, vegan leather alternative, pollution solution, and personality aesthetic, also known as vibes. And all of these visible trends are just the tip of the toadstool. Fungi specifically constitute this sort of vast, understudied kingdom of life that do so much work in our ecosystems and made it possible for us to even sort of live on land, partnering with plants, making it possible for plants to gather nutrients. They break everything down. They're important recyclers. They make soil possible. And we know so little about them. There's an estimated two to four million species of fungi out there. And science has described only about 150,000 of them. That's today's guest, Maria Pinto. Maria is a writer, an educator, a forager, a gazer of black trumpet mushrooms. And in case you can't tell, Maria is a major mycophile. And that's fancy for mushroom enthusiast. The question is, though, what makes mushrooms so magical? 
I mean, for one thing, they're more closely related to animals than plants. Yeah, just learn that. And ladies, we're going to need not one, not two, but three episodes to even start answering that question. Because in the same way that Maria describes fungi as a vast, understudied kingdom of life, so is the relationship between women and said fungi. Or really, I should say women and mushrooms, since fungi also include yeasts and molds, which are unladylike, but maybe, honestly, too on the nose. Today, we're getting literally down and dirty with Maria and the more practical magic of mushrooms and amateur mycology, the study of all this fungus among us. When I was growing up, I lived on a couple of farms briefly one in Jamaica and one in in South Florida. I was a bit of a swamp rat (laughs) growing up, running around. Then got kind of disconnected from that life when our family moved to the suburbs, when it was all controlled, you know. But then in college, I started going on plant walks and things like that with the anarchist kids. It was really cool to just be able to pluck things directly from the ground that I hadn't even farmed. Felt like cheating, (laughs) but I didn't really fall completely in love with plants. They're not as sexy, I don't think, as fungi. They're less mysterious. Mm -hmm. So it was when a Polish friend of mine who grew up with mushroom hunting as a sort of national pastime, you go, you know, with your family to the forest in Poland to go hunt mushrooms. She, in a nearby suburb, would have these parties where she'd just give away pounds and pounds of hen of the woods mushrooms and each fruiting body of this fungus is extremely impressive it's very beautiful but it's also incredibly delicious and it was the most delicious mushroom i'd ever tasted Mm. so that got me thinking like wow this is just free gourmet food on the ground (laughs) like in the woods if you know where to find them they're just there So I started to, you know, do a little bit of self-directed study and I joined all of the online fora and I joined the mycological society. And when I realized that I liked even the ones that you couldn't eat, that's when I knew that I was in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) What exactly is mushroom foraging and like, are you explicitly looking for edible ones? Yeah. So the foraging side of it is definitely what got me interested, but it's not what kept me there. But foraging for for edibles is a lot of fun and it's a way to sort of interact with the seasons in a, a way that modern life has maybe divorced us from. There are several ways to really go on a hunt for mushrooms. You can be going specifically because you want to find dinner Or you can just want to commune a little bit with nature and look a little bit more closely at the ground. When you are out in nature on these walks, where and how are you looking for mushrooms? This past week, as a for instance, I've gone on three mushroom hunts with three different friends of mine. I'm lucky enough to live very close to a beautiful woodland, something like 700 acres, I want to say. There are several entrances nearby. 
And the closest to my home is the one that I go at least three times a week during peak mushroom season, which is autumn. I get on the trail. I like to say that I try to attain mushroom speed pretty quickly. (laughs) And that's just really slowing down and being willing to stop and really look at the ground for a, a long time. Several species of mushrooms that are edible grow on the stumps of trees and on fallen logs and things like that. But a lot of the interesting stuff is coming directly from the earth. So you want to really slow down, be willing to get on your knees if you need to. A couple of my favorite mushrooms to search for in the summer are cordycipioid, cordyceps mushrooms that grow locally and grow from moth pupae. So you're not going to find those if you're sort of rushing by. We're mostly focused on the ground and looking up occasionally to see if something's fruiting from the bark of a tree. That kind of hunt, I often need some sort of external reminder that the outside world exists. (laughs) Um, Because you can go for hours and hours and hours and just keep finding things. And it's it really puts puts you in touch with other critters as well. You start to notice the snakes, the spiders, and other creepy crawlies, other misunderstood organisms as well. And um, sometimes it takes your partner calling and saying, are you all right in there? <laughs> For you to exit the woods. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. And I know people who have done exactly that. Met on Hinge and then deleted Hinge because they're still together. Hinge is great for anyone looking to date with intention. No matter if you're part of the LGBTQIA family or not, Hinge helps you find people you actually like. And one thing you get to do on Hinge is add up to three prompts on your profile. And I'll just go ahead and, and give you some easy fill-ins if you want to get started. Green flags I look for. People who listen to Unladylike, obviously. This year, I really want to listen to more Unladylike. And for number three, unusual skills. I can quote the Unladylike podcast end credits from memory. And listen up, bisexual and queer unladies. Hinge has just launched their new bisexual preferences that will allow you to customize preferences for age and height across different genders, making it easier to find what you're looking for and go on great dates. We all deserve to have more control over our dating experience. So download Hinge and find someone worth deleting the app for. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And ladies, a quick historical note before we get back to my interview with Maria Pinto. In the late 1800s, as edible mushrooms are starting to catch on a bit more in American kitchens, wild mushroom foraging 
also became something of a fad. But the women who were able to do that had the privilege of time and the social standing had the visible and invisible resources to be able to kind of give themselves fully to their mycophilia. And of course, the science of mycology was being formalized around the same time by a lot of times their husbands, their uncles, the white men of science. Which isn't to say at all that white people discovered mushrooms. No, 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 no. But just to note that there has historically been implicit and explicit gatekeeping around who gets to enjoy mushrooms. What is fungal looking? Yeah, so it's a phrase I made up <laughs> to, to describe to describe the sort of attention that is required of you to really start to notice all the different types of fungi and other organisms that might be in your area. It's also a mode of going into a situation without knowing that you have the answers, which is a kind of humility that mushroom hunting has hopefully taught me. It's really easy to, in this day and age, especially with the way we engage with the world through social media and through sound bites and all of that stuff, to go into to situations with a made-up mind and with the idea that you're going to know exactly what you're looking at when you see it. But mushrooms do not operate like that at all. I have had the pleasure of having two experts in the genus Amanita, which contains the deadliest mushroom there is, the death cat mushroom, Amanita phylloides. I've had two Amanita experts arguing on a photograph that I took of something that I thought was Amanita phylloides, the death cap. And one of the two experts that was arguing thought that it was perfectly delicious, edible Amanita lavendula. Mm. And they spent a really long time, like the, a full day, having this argument on one of my photos on social media. <laughs> and if two experts, people who have been doing this for, you know, upwards of 10 years can have that sort of argument, <laughs> it really teaches you that you cannot go into a situation like picking that mushroom and, and say, yes, I know exactly what it is I have. It teaches you to be humble. The language that a lot of mushroom hunters and mycologists will use when they're doing ID is I would compare that to, or that looks like, or, you know, something suggesting that you cannot be certain without further investigation. And what is the further investigation you could do to confirm what it is? There are a number of things you can do. You can, in the field, you can take the mushroom and smell it. And in that instance, a death cap has a kind of sickly sweet smell once it's mature enough. Um, so I was too new to mushroom hunting to have done that. I, I didn't. I left all of the specimens in the woods. Mushroom hunting is a, a truly sensual experience. It calls on you to not only look at the thing, not only look at the specimen, but to smell it, to sometimes take a little nibble and taste it to cut it in half and, and do a cross-section and see what it looks like on the inside, to tell what trees it, it was growing with, what kind of soil 
it grew with. And then once you have it home, maybe you do a spore print, take the cap of the mushroom and you put it on a surface that will show you what color the spores are. Once you've gotten a little bit more comfortable with the mycology, you might get yourself a microscope and look at the spores, spore ornamentation, the way they're shaped, the color, the size, that gives you information and and tells you more about its identity. I think that you mentioned a few minutes ago that it's not the foraging itself that has kept you fascinated with mushrooms and fungi. So, so what is the thing that has kept you hooked? The community is just far-reaching. I mean, mushrooms have brought me all over the place. They've brought me, just this past summer, I was in Oaxaca, Mexico, and I went on a foray with a local group that was doing a, a diversity survey as well as putting on a fiesta de hongos or a a mushroom party with mariachi music and kids running around everywhere and and delicious food. It really felt, you know, even though I was only there for a short time, like I became a part of the community. And I think it's because we're doing this sort of niche, seeming, rarefied activity that nonetheless, a lot of people are currently super fascinated by. There's also this way that you're contributing to something real, to something because of how understudied mushrooms are. The fact that I can meaningfully sort of participate in the science of this burgeoning field in a meaningful way as someone who has no degrees. I'm not a biologist. I'm just really hungry and curious. I'm literally... So excited to see what my friends around the U.S. and around the world have found by digging around in the dirt. And I just think that's really special. There's always a moment when I take groups out for forays where I look around and realize that there are all of these adults just playing, <laughs> you know? We're all just sort of like getting dirty and getting really excited to find, you know, these treasures that were otherwise hidden. All sorts of beautiful things that mushroom hunting and the pursuit of mushrooms has brought to my life that I would not trade. How would you describe the kind of mycology and mushroom enthusiast community? (laughs) It is very varied. (laughs) Um, I started off in this really weird way that I think is normal in this day and age, but just joining all of these online groups where we'd post our our mushroom finds and try to get some identifications and which resulted in befriending strangers from around the world, essentially. And in that community, I think there is an emphasis on the science aspect as well as the culinary aspect. But There are all these sort of arguments that it was strange to be a part of as a non-scientist. Debates about whether we use the Latin binomial, the botanical Latin to describe the mushrooms that we find versus the common names, which are more, you know, it's a more sort of like egalitarian way of going about it. But then going on forays with folks in my area who are 
a lot more casual who are doing it mostly because they like the culinary aspect of mm-hmm. mushroom hunting. A lot more welcoming. Just when I was in Telluride for the biggest mushroom festival, definitely in the U.S. And West Coast mushroom hunters and and people in, in the Rocky Mountains are so much more laid back than East Coast mushroom hunters, for instance. In my experience, uh-huh. there's just sort of there's just sort of a different approach to being in the woods. We, you know, spread out and we're excited about what we saw. If we could pin a name on it immediately, that was cool, but it wasn't as competitive as I've seen it get. It's been interesting to just meet different people. I would say that maybe some of the most fun I've had in the woods was in Oaxaca at that fiesta because I mean, what's better than starting a mushroom hunt with a mariachi band? Like, <laughs> I've never, I've never seen the likes of that. From your perspective, is there a barrier to entry? If there was a barrier, I ignored it. <laughs> I just sort of stormed past it. I think that I know that there are folks, folks that I've spoken to who didn't necessarily want to join the mycological society because they saw a group of, you know, elder white folks and that didn't necessarily speak to them as a a place where they would be welcomed. I tend to do my best to ignore stuff like that if I'm passionate, but I absolutely understand why you wouldn't want to step into a room where there aren't folks who necessarily look like you. And that's one of the reasons I've found so much meaning and pleasure in being able to say, all right, we're doing a black and brown folks only walk, you know, next week, because there is a a general hunger for this kind of experience. And I've definitely seen it in my area. And I know that it means that it exists everywhere. I think that Fungi are special enough that that they make people feel that they are able to transcend barriers that might keep them from, from doing certain things otherwise. Everyone should drop what they're doing. And in the great immortal words of Gary Linkoff, may he rest in peace, just start studying mushrooms. Quit your job. (laughs) (laughs) We need all the mycologists we can get out there. Don't really quit your job. I know you need to eat. Um, (laughs) But I think the the, um, sentiment is coming from a, a... a very good place. There was a 2020 interview that you did with WBUR, and you said, Black and brown femmes especially need to get out here and see what the woods have gifted us. Tell me about that. And does it connect back at all to fungal looking? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think that because of the way 
especially this region. I'll speak to this region specifically. I've been thinking a lot lately about redlining and what it has meant for isolating certain communities away from green spaces and literally black and brown communities in my city are heating at a different rate. Like it's literally hotter there because there's less tree canopy because of environmental racism. Because Boston is one of the most segregated cities in America, there are all sorts of ways that you see the legacy of redlining being enacted in who gets, you know, their fair share of natural resources, etc. So that combined with the fact that there are all of these anti-foraging laws that have their origin in, in really racist ideology, you know, this very paternalistic idea of who gets to really interface with the land. If you own acres of property, you can do what you want. But if you live in the city and you happen to live near a park, good luck to you. And I think this idea that I touched on earlier of folks not necessarily feeling as welcome in, in spaces where people don't look like them, I think that absolutely has its roots in the fact that you're less likely to see forays being held in urban areas, which is wild because fungal diversity in urban parks is wonderful. It's like there are so many beautiful mushrooms growing in a place like Franklin Park, which is, you know, in a Black area of Boston. But because of that alienation, because of the sort of historic, I guess, association of looking for your own food as this, oh, well, you can't afford to buy quality ingredients at the grocery store, so you're rooting around in the dirt. There are all sorts of weird associations and all sorts of rabbit holes that, you know, this kind, this line of inquiry can take you down. But the bottom line is a lot of the reasons that Black and brown folks might feel disconnected from nature or from the natural areas where they live is by design. It's rooted in, in racism often. And this idea that we don't belong in the outdoors and you see things like burgers getting the cops called on them. And it's exciting this time to watch just folks realizing, actually, we've always had a connection to this land. We've always understood it. Sometimes, a lot of times, better than colonizers or, or you know, the descendants of colonizers have. So it feels like a reclamation and it feels like it's more important now than ever for folks to feel connected with the land that they live with and the land that supports them and to maybe take out some of the middleman. I know we can't do it on a large enough scale to feed everyone, but the idea of getting out there and slowing down and letting nature work its magic, letting it, you know, slow your breathing and remind you that you are a part of it, you are not separate from nature, is so important for people who look like me, I think, to just reconnect with. How have mushrooms changed you? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I've lived in the greater Boston area for about 20 years now, 
And for some reason, despite the fact that it is prohibitively expensive to live here, it is, like I said, one of the most segregated cities in, in the nation. And I think mushrooms have given me a home here because I started to exist differently when I connected with the seasons in a way that wasn't just, oh, winter's coming, I got to get the coats out of storage. Revisiting the same patch of land sort of obsessively, you know, three times a week if you can, is the biggest reality check you can get. And to actually see what the actual land is doing from day to day, from season to season, has connected me more with this place and the people in it and the people who I want to know. For the first time in these past like six to seven years, I feel like I have a community, not just of, of people who like to hike, but of other organisms too. Mm. Like I know the deer that live down the street, you know what I mean? Like I have connected with this place in ways that I never could have dreamed of when I came up here for college. Mushrooms have given me a home in a weird way. They've given me a way to count the passage of time that isn't depressing. <laughs> They've given me a community of like-minded people. They've changed the way I think about nutrition. Uh, what haven't they done is a, a, a simpler question, I think. <laughs> Why do you think that mushroom enthusiasm, uh, mycophilia is really, hmm. to make a really bad pun, mushrooming uh, these days? <laughs> Why do you think that is? I wonder if the sort of isolation of the ongoing pandemic has brought people outside a little bit more. And, you know, you have things like the Netflix documentary. What is it? Fantastic Fungi. You have things like The Last of Us, which is mycophobic, but I gave a walk to a couple who watched The Last of Us and then wanted to go mushroom hunting. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly, clearly it's not, you know, completely a, an averse reaction. I think that we're finally catching up to some of the more mycophilic regions of the world and realizing that there is so much to learn, not to flog the understudied aspect of kingdom fungi, but they're so neat and weird and beautiful. And there's something for everyone. There's medicine, there's food, there's science, there's the, you know, opportunity to be dorky and look under a microscope. There's hanging out with your friends. I think that it's really cool that this set of organisms can encapsulate so many different ways of being in the world. And folks are starting to take notice for whatever reason. Do you have any bucket list species? Is there a particular mm. mushroom that you would love to see in the wild one day? Yes, there is a mushroom that grows up in New Hampshire called either Polyporus or Cladomeris. 
uh, umbilatus. It's the umbrella polypore. And it's just so neat looking. And folks have said that it has a similar flavor to hen of the woods or maitake mushrooms. And I've never seen it in the wild. It's just this great big complex of umbrellas, <laughs> basically. That will be a neat one if I ever encounter it. There is, I want to say, Rhododus palmatis, the wrinkled peach cap. That's one that whenever you see a bunch of like time lapses circulating on the internet, it always features because it's just alien looking as heck. It's like got this wrinkled cap and it's peach color and sometimes there's gatation or it's like exuding liquids in a way that looks a little bit alien. What else? There are so many. Polyzellus multiplex, which is apparently very delicious relative of the chanterelle. And again, another really, really gorgeous mushroom. I just want to see all the gorgeous mushrooms. <laughs> all there is to it. <laughs> I just Google image the wrinkled peach and oh my goodness. <laughs> right? Yes. Uh... <laughs> I mean... Come on. <laughs> wow. I think also one of the reasons for the fascination is that, as I was saying before, the, the, this idea that we're walking by these organisms every day and they're just hanging out, chilling, doing their little jobs in the ecosystem, and we're stepping right past them when just a, a little bit of examination will show you this gorgeous, weird workhorse world it's, it's really something else And ladies, if you are mushroom curious, Maria recommends starting out with a good local or regional mushroom field guide so you can just learn what's in your area. You can also go online, see what folks are posting on any mushroom forums for where you live. There's a ton of stuff on YouTube. One of Maria's favorite series is called Learn Your Land. You can join your local mycological society and really whatever you do, whatever you do. Be careful what you eat. You can follow Maria on Instagram at a Raven's Grace. And if you too are a mycophile, please tell me your mushroom stories. Or if there are any other unladylike layers to this whole shroom boom, I would love to hear all about it. You can send your voice memos to hello at unladylike.co or DM me on Instagram at unladylike media. And you want more mushrooms? I hope so, because next week we are off to a cabin in the woods to macrodose. Yeah, there's, you know, microdosing, but macrodosing is when you take enough to really see some shit. There is also a whole cast of unladylike characters in the history of mycology and psychedelia that I will be introducing in the Unladies Room Patreon. Going to be talking about them in a bonus episode. It's going to be so fun. <laughs> Patreon.com slash unladylike media is where you can go or just search unladylike media in your Patreon app. It's $5 a month to join, and I can't wait to see you there. 
Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? Ooh. <laughs> the most unladylike thing about me is it doesn't matter where I am, who is near, um, what they'll think. I drop to the ground, butt cheeks in the air, <laughs> and I will take a picture of that mushroom. Um, I'll, I'll get on my hands and knees and I do not care who's watching. <laughs> <laughs>